Open your Bibles to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, page 600, if you're using a Bible uh, under a chair in the row ahead of you. Doug is still thinking it's a pew. I understand the challenge. <laughs> we get so used to saying that for decades, the pew in front of you, the chair in front of you. And uh, aren't you glad that they're soft, cushiony chairs and that we sit here in the air conditioning today? Uh, <laughs> Praise God for man taking dominion over all aspects, including air conditioning and padding, and uh, so we thank God for that. Uh, We're in Psalm 50, page 600, and we've we've been singing all about God this morning. We've been singing all about who He is and what He does, but my question for you is, how do you think of God? On a regular basis, when when God comes to mind or the word God is used, what's the first thing, the first word, the first picture that comes to mind? When I say God, what does he look like? What do you see? Now, we know he's not a man, so I'm not not saying that, but maybe you think of Jesus, uh, the God-man. What's the first picture? God. Problem is, I already knew this was coming, so I can't really do that. I've messed up my own problem with my, in my own head. <laughs> I wonder, for, for some of you, is, is he the kindly grandfather with a long white beard? You know, kind of wrinkly and old, but smiling gently. Or is he the angry God destroying the pagan nations? Is he a rider on a white horse coming to judge the nations with a sword coming out of his mouth? Or is he a kind, soft-spoken teacher giving out pearls of wisdom and parables? Or is there something, what, what comes to your mind when, when you think of God, when you think of uh, the Almighty God? Today, as we again go to the Psalms, we're going to first of all, as always, see who God is and then what that means for us. And it's going to correct some of our misconceptions, and I hope it'll correct them for you. But Before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Father, we need our minds to be rightly ordered. We need our thoughts to be put in order according to your word. We need them to fit with your self-revelation. The way that you have described yourself, the way that you have declared yourself, we need to understand that. We need to remember it. We need to be transformed by it. And so we ask for your help through your spirit as we look into your word. Illuminate our minds to understand and to see and to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 50, we'll read the whole psalm, please follow along as I read. This is a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's righteous self-revelation, his glorious truth. May we listen to it this morning. This is a psalm of Asaph. This is one of the 12 songs either written by Asaph or dedicated to him. Asaph was one of King's, King David's chief musicians, and he had sung songs written by David, and he also wrote songs himself that God's people sang. And so he was the chief musician, other songwriters under him. He led God's people in worship. They sang the Psalms of David. They sang his songs. Uh, he was one of the first worship leaders in the world. Worship leaders leading the congregation of God's people, writing songs, leading in worship. This is one of his songs, or it's a song dedicated to him. The theme of this psalm is the title of the message, The Lord God Judges His People. The Lord God Judges His People. This, again, like last week's psalm, is a teaching psalm. It's a psalm telling us, a song telling us who God is and what God does to educate and disciple God's people. And it shows us, ultimately, most importantly, that God is the judge. And so that's where we begin today in verse 1 with the courtroom setting pictured. Verses 1 through 6 give us the picture of the courtroom. So I don't want you to forget as we get to the Psalms that this is poetry. This is, this is a song. And what's, what's fascinating is I'm not a big fan of poetry. I'm not a songwriter. Uh, I don't remember lyrics very well. And so if you, if you sit close to me in church when I worship and I close my eyes and I sing from memory, I will invariably get a, a word wrong or three words wrong or a word every sentence wrong, and invariably Tracy will be giggling at that and thinking it's hilarious. So when we're in the car and she gets a word wrong, I make sure I point that out to her every time. But I remember melodies. So I'm, I'm not a poet, and I struggle myself with poetry, but we have to see these songs as poetry. These songs of wisdom are songs put in poetic form which means the mighty one, God, Yahweh, is summoning all the earth. And here the po poet, uh, as he exaggerates, not exaggerates in, in a way that doesn't teach us something, but in a, in a picture form to give us the full totality of what God is saying here in his word, from the rising to the setting of the sun. The mighty one, Yahweh, God Almighty, he summons everything in the world. And where does he summon it? I believe he is summoning to his courtroom. So this is a courtroom scene. So he's, he's calling all of the earth to gather. For what purpose? Well, 
because the righteous judge is coming out of his chambers in the shining perfection of beauty. So out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So in a sense, out of the, the chambers comes this mighty judge in glorious perfection, in beauteous robes. Here's this beautiful judge coming out, and he's summoning, hear ye, hear ye, all the people gather for court. That's the idea. So then he takes his seat. He takes his seat in judgment. Before his judgment, a consuming fire goes before him and a hurricane swirls around him. Do you hear the poetry? There's this, this picture of, of devouring fire and a mighty tempest. They're trying to get a picture of how awesome this judge is. And so the songwriter is putting it in terms that we see awesome power and glorious strength and, and glorious judgment all in one person. And this puts in poetic form what the scripture says directly in other places. So Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. In what way is he a consuming fire? He is a jealous God. His jealousy for his people burns things up. He consumes others in his jealous love for his people. Also from Psalm 18, in my distress I called upon the Lord Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness under his feet. He made darkness his covering. His canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of his brightness, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Do you see why we sing the songs that we sing, the hymns that we sing about all the, the mighty frost and the, and the snow and the rain and all these things? This is a picture of the mighty God seeing all of that power of nature enveloped around him. So when God called his people Israel to the mountain, what covered the mountain? Darkness and smoke. And God's people were afraid to come near because he was picturing his holiness. He was picturing his power. He was picturing his might before his people. And they saw it. Now, we don't see it with our eyes, but we read about it and we think about it. And we let the poetry form a perspective of who God is. We let the, the scripture tell us, what, and as he comes out in judgment, see him for who he is. We have pictures of judges in our mind. This, the picture of this whole Supreme Court, whatever Supreme Court you want to picture, all the nine judges in their robes being pictured. We have a picture of a judge uh, sitting behind the bar on, on the raised seat, whatever judge comes to mind. We, we have those pictures, but this is a picture of God the judge. What does he look like? And the poet is trying to describe in, in, in poetic form what we can, we can understand because we've seen hailstones, we've seen darkness, we've seen fire, we've seen mighty storms, maybe not a hurricane. Some of us have lived in Florida and seen some hurricane-like weather. And so that's the picture. This is the mighty God. Second Thessalonians 1. So it's not just Old Testament, it's also new. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's not just Old Testament. It's New Testament. It's not just God the Father. It's also God the Son. This is who God is. Can you picture it? Can you see it? Notice the judge of Israel comes to judge his people. 
So verse 4, what is he doing? He's calling the heavens above and the earth into the throne, into the judgment room, in the judgment hall, because God is now going to judge, carefully notice, his people. He calls his people before the bar. He says, gather to me my faithful ones, those who had made covenant with me by sacrifice. These are God's covenant people. One thing to understand as we read the Old Testament is the difference between Israel, God's old covenant people, and the church, God's new covenant people. So there's distinctions and there's similarities, and, and it's difficult for us to sometimes see that. But originally, the original audience is God's old covenant people, God's people Israel. They are his by covenant by sacrifice, but so are God's new covenant people, his people by sacrifice. Different sacrifice, different covenant, different results from that covenant. But this is God's people Israel. And with the old covenant people, they are God's covenant people by sacrifice. But the difference between old covenant people and new covenant people is that not all the people in the old covenant are faithful. Not all of Israel is Abraham's descendants in the sense of descendants by faith. So in the old covenant, it's a mixed multitude of people who could be a part of God's covenant people and yet unfaithful to the covenant. So that's important to see because it's going to show up in this passage. But the new covenant is made through what sacrifice? The sacrifice of Christ, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams. That's not the sacrifice. The new covenant is made through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who brought his blood into the Holy of Holies and made eternal, uh, final sacrifice for his people. And all of God's people in the new covenant are faithful people. Only new covenant people All New Covenant people are people who have the Holy Spirit, who have been made one with him, who have been regenerated. And so the New Covenant people are not a mixed multitude. The New Covenant people are a perfect people. The Old Covenant people are a mixed multitude of faithful Jews and unfaithful Jews, those faithful to the covenant and those not. And so here we see God's covenant people being judged, Old Testament Israel. And they are the ones who are faithful, but not all are faithful, as we'll see in a minute, but they are all his by covenant. And so the heavens now are declaring the righteousness of this great judge. God himself is judge. So some things to think about as we think about who God is. Yahweh can summon all the earth because he is the creator and Lord of all the earth. Our God is the king of all the earth, and he has all authority in all the earth. He's had it in the old covenant. He has it in the new covenant. He has it now. Secondly, this is not the common picture of God the Father that people have. (laughs) We don't think of a devouring fire and mighty tempests when we think of God very often. This is not the picture. And so we need to reorient our thinking. We must have a full-orbed picture of God from Scripture. Don't don't focus on just one characteristic, one aspect of divinity. See all of Scripture and bring all of that to bear on who God is. And thirdly, we love to talk about God judging the world, judging sinners, judging our enemies, judging others. But we don't like to talk about God's judgment of his people. This is God's judgment of his people. And that's why this psalm is so good for us, because we are God's covenant people now. And therefore, we can learn from God's judgment on his old covenant people what we can know as his new covenant people, God's judgment 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins where? At the household of God. So we must repent. We must repent of our sin. That's why we confess our sin as a church every Sunday morning in the prayer of confession. 
Do you, do you listen to the prayer of confession or have you tuned me out that quickly already? Do you hear what I pray? You paying attention? When you hear me pray the prayer of confession sometimes, do you think, wow, I don't think we're really that bad. Ever thought that? Well, see, I just happen to have it right here and I, I wrote it down so I could remember what I was going to say. So I say this. We confess you are the gracious God who blesses us in all things, yet we are not thankful. We count our troubles and not our blessings. We take your goodness for granted. We believe that all your good gifts are owed. Is that true of us? That doesn't sound very good, does it? God's people think that like that? How thankful have you been this week? For all of God's blessings, do you think God just owes you your blessings? Food and shelter and health and safety? When it's taken away... Are you angry because you think it's owed to you, or do you realize that all good gifts come from God, even the difficult things, the traumas, the difficult? And then we, I went on. Uh, we confess that you are the God who saves. We do not call on you in the day of trouble. We trust in ourselves or in others for rescue. Prayer is only an activity of last resort. Well, that's really harsh. I'm sure that that's not true of our church and of us, right? That's for other Christians. I mean, none of us get to that point where we're like, oh, I should probably pray about that. Well, I've tried everything else. Maybe we should pray. That never happens for you, does it? Okay, I, I see that I'm missing the mark here. Uh, how about this one? Father, we've hated your discipline. We ignore your word, treating your commandments as something to be disregarded. That wouldn't be true of this church or these people, would it? We've made light of the sins of others. We've made evildoers our close companions. Our mouths have become a conduit for evil. We speak lies and slander and slander others. We say filthy things and curse others. No, of course not this. I mean, this, I must be praying a prayer of confession for a different church and different people. So are you listening to what I'm praying? This is why repentance begins where? At the house of the Lord, because where does judgment begin? At the house of the Lord. And if God is going to use us as a church in this world, if he's going to make a difference through us, we have to be people who repent of our sin, repent daily, and are transformed by God's goodness, confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. We need cleansing. We need transformation. But in case you think, well, praise God, God's judgment comes to his people. God, you need to get those religious people, those hypocritical people in churches. Well, pay attention to the last part of this verse. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God's going to judge his people like this, how is he going to judge those who are not his people? If God is this harsh and this condemning and this strong with his people, how is he going to judge his enemies and those who rejected him? So it's kind of like this. God is that father who's that really tough, you know, 1940s father. Runs a tight ship, you know, cracks a harsh whip, maybe uses an implement or two to put, apply to the backside of his children. And people say, wow, that dad's really harsh. You say, yeah, he is really harsh with his kids. I wonder how he would treat his enemies, those who are a threat to his family. He would not be a pacifist. So this is the idea. This is the idea where repentance comes. So we as God's people need to see that the judgment is for us, and that should immediately put us in the mindset of we are these people, we are God's covenant people, and we need to see ourselves here and know what we must repent of. Now, that's the picture, where the courtroom setting. Now, what's the judgment? The Lord's judgment is declared, verses 7 through 21. Remember, the first audience is Israel, but now we're applying that to the visible church. 
So the application for us is, the, is, is a mixed multitude of God's old covenant people, Israel, but the visible church is a mixed multitude. Not the new covenant people, but the visible church. So in a visible worship service with people who profess to be God's new covenant people, not everyone who professes to be God's new covenant people are. So the worship service is a mixed multitude of those who are truly God's people and those who are just professing it but are not. And so that's the scene here. The visible church. And so here in the visible church, here in the old covenant people, God's people are not rebuked for their sacrifices. So the Lord's judgment is declared, verses 7 through 21, and first of all, God's people are not rebuked for their sacrifices. That's what he says. Not for your sacrifices, verse 8, do I rebuke you. So God's people had faithfully maintained the external acts of worship. They had brought the sacrifices. That's what he says. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So the old covenant people were like professing Christians who faithfully attend church every Sunday, sing the songs, give the tithe, quietly listen to the sermon, take the Lord's Supper, shake the pastor's hand on the way out, and tell him how much they enjoyed it and how wonderful it was. This is the people who faithfully come and present their sacrifices day after day, week after week, year after year. They're doing the worship of external, externalities. Yet, yet, formalism made their sacrifices unacceptable. Verse 9, I will not accept the bull, the goats. I will not accept these things. Why? Their formalism had made their sacrifices unacceptable. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But this is also true for for what Jesus says to Old Covenant people in Matthew 23, verse 23. What we saw with the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They were following the, the minute details of the law, yet neglecting the heavy matters of the law. So is tithing wrong? Should tithing be done away with? Were they wrong for tithing? No, they were neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have tithed. These you ought to have done without neglecting the weightier matters. Do the weightier matters and do the externals, but don't forget that the more important things are the internals, not the externals. So when I say this, that there are Christians who come to church and they faithfully do all these, they sing the songs, they give the tithe, they shake the pastor's hand and tell him how wonderful the sermon is. These you ought to do without neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Okay, so everyone understood the application for today. When you go out and you shake my hand, you are supposed to say, I really appreciate it. It was a great message. That was, if you didn't, it was subtle. So I, I didn't, no one was really getting, like two smiles, which means you weren't getting what I was trying to say. These you ought to do without forgetting the internals. Yet they had only done the formalistic externals. They were following God's law when it came to all the aspects of worship. Yet there was a problem. And so what God says is he corrects them for their formalism. He says, first of all, he doesn't need their sacrifices because he owns it all. Every beast of the forest is mine. Every goat is mine. Everything is mine. I don't need your sacrifices. So don't bring them because you think God needs them. And God doesn't need their sacrifices because we can't meet his needs. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Because all the world in its fullness are mine. If, if you're hungry, mom and dad, do you tell your kids? Do you tell your eight-year-old, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. When are you going to fix dinner? You know, I'm just, I'm, I've been sitting here all day just waiting for you to feed me. I'm so hungry. No, parents, if you're hungry, you would not tell your children. What would you do? 
You would fix the food because you fix the food and give to your children. The children don't fix the food and give to you. Can you imagine the difference between us and our kids and God and his kids? If God is hungry, would he need you to feed him? No. No, he's not. Now notice that the word if is there. If he had any needs, you wouldn't be the one to meet them. He's not hungry. Okay, so notice that. He's not hungry. But using an analogy that people can understand, if he were hungry, you still wouldn't meet his needs. But is God hungry? Is God thirsty? Say, well, yeah, on the cross he was. The God-man in his humanity was thirsty. But God is not thirsty. God is not hungry. He doesn't need us to meet his needs. The sacrifices of God's old covenant people were not them feeding God. Who had that mentality? Who had the mentality that you brought your sacrifices to a God and you sacrificed these things to feed your God, to make your God happy so that he would give things for you? Who had that mentality? The pagan people. That's what they thought. They thought that their sacrifices were feeding God. You you can say it with American Indians. They bring their food, they bring their sacrifices, and they wait for them to be eaten. They never get eaten, but they keep thinking those feed their gods. That's paganism. And so what God is saying here is is pointing to the fact that God's people had actually begun to think of him probably just like the pagans. That somehow they had to keep bringing these things to feed God, to appease God, to meet his needs as if he needed them. And notice the sacrifices aren't his food anyway. I kind of said that already. We must not turn God into a caricature, into a pagan caricature of a God who needs us. And so many Christians within evangelicalism have done that. They think that God needs our worship. God needs our relationship. God created man because he was lonely, and he needs you, and he loves you, and you're so wonderful. He created you because you are so special and so wonderful because he needs it. No, he doesn't need that. He had perfect communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian love and fellowship and communion for all eternity past. God wasn't lonely in heaven and say, well, one day I should make these people that are like me that can have fellowship with me because, you know, that's probably not a good illustration. Should I say it or not? You get to choose. Now he's, I don't know what he's going to say. It's not like, God's not like us when we need a puppy. Like people are puppies. It's like, I'm so lonely, I just need a dog or something like that. No, that's not God. He wasn't lonely. He doesn't, he doesn't need a pet. He doesn't need someone to pour his affection on. He was in perfect communion. Probably wasn't a good one, was it? I should have left that one alone. And you're like, no, not a good one. All right. I thought so, but I thought, well, now, you, now I didn't want to leave you hanging there with what that was. Notice, Matthew Henry says this, their constant sacrifices, they thought, would both expiate and excuse their neglect of the weightier matters of the law. They thought God was mightily beholden to them for the many sacrifices they had brought to his altar. Notice that. They thought God was beholden to them because of all their worship. God owes me. And they had made him very much their debtor by their sacrifices. The problem was God rejected their sacrifices because of their formalism because they had forgotten what was most necessary. They had forgotten what was most necessary. It's what God said through Samuel to King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said to King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What's better, obedience or sacrifice? Behold, 
So pay attention. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of rams. So Saul had thought that he could take the animals he was supposed to kill and offer them to God as a sacrifice, and God would be happier when he disobeyed God to worship. How'd that work out for Saul? Not well. We must understand what is most necessary. We cannot forget what is most necessary. And God's people here had forgotten, and God was rejecting their sacrifices. So what does he say to them? Verse 14. He says, continue to be obedient to the law and offer the sacrifices, but offer them differently. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Bring your sacrifices of thanksgiving. Every sacrifice you bring should be brought with thanksgiving, an eternal heart of thanksgiving that leads to the outward external of worship. Did you come with a heart of thanksgiving this morning? Did you come thankful, a heart of thanksgiving that leads to be burst out in song, that leads to listening to the word of God with joy? Or did you come, oh, it's so hot, it's so miserable, I didn't sleep long enough, and I got these kids, and I just got to get up, and I had a hard week, and so I come to church, and, and let me sing my song to the Lord, let me put the money in the plate, we'll take the communion, and hopefully we won't be here too long. I mean, seriously, that's they say, how did you know? Well, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm not a human who struggles with sin. <laughs> you know, it's worse when the pastor doesn't want to hear himself preach. You know what I'm saying? This is difficult. It's hard. It's like, man, I wish we had a guest preacher today. Um, sacrifices of thanksgiving, but also sacrifices of obedience. Perform your vows to the Most High. Keep your vows. Obey the commandments. Bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving, but the sacrifice is an external action of obedience because you're obedience to all the commands of God, not just to the worship commands. It's also a sacrifice of dependence. Verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Bring a sacrifice demonstrating your thanksgiving, your obedience, and your dependence on God. Not because you're feeding him to give you something, but because you're saying, I will obey you because it doesn't matter how many lambs I have, how many goats, how many bulls, how many rams. If I give one to God, God will not allow me to go without because he's the one I depend on. And our greatest sacrifice of dependence is our sacrifice of prayer. Do you pray in dependence of God Daily, regularly, throughout the day, are you offering a sacrifice of dependence by saying, Lord, help me. I need you. I need you. That's a sacrifice. It's an action of worship, external worship of prayer, independence. And what does that kind of dependence do? Glorifies God. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Praying in dependence of God tells God we need him. So we come and we sing songs, we pray, we do this as outwardly as thanksgiving, we do it as obedience, and we do it as dependence. Keep doing all of the external actions of worship, but make sure that all of the externals are driven by all of the internals. Thanksgiving, obedience, and dependence. What does God promise? And I will deliver you. God loves his children to be fully and completely dependent upon him. He loves that sacrifice of dependence. So those are the people that God does not rebuke for the sacrifices. He rebukes for the formalism. But secondly, God's people are rebuked for wicked pretending. There's a contrast in verse 16, but. Always notice the contrast in scripture. But to the wicked, God says. Well, it sounds like God is changing uh, people. Like he's went from the faithful covenant people that were struggling with their formalism to a different group of people. No, he's talking to the same covenant people of Israel. But within this covenant people of Israel, there are two groups. There are the formalists 
and the wicked pretenders. To the wicked, God says. And so it's the same covenant people, but it has two different groups. So here, in a church like ours, if you're truly a believer, you can still be giving in to formalism and be God's covenant people. You can still be a Christian and be formalistic in your activity. So to repent and do these other things, but you could be here in this church setting professing to be a Christian, God's covenant people, and yet only be a pretender. That's another group. So there's the wicked people who are pretending are now rebuked. As God's covenant people, these wicked people have done what? They have recited his statutes. They've taken his covenant on their lips. These are people who claim God's law as their law. They claim to be God's people paying lip service to his covenant. Yet their actions are a breaking of that covenant. We've talked about this already, the difference between the old and new covenant people. So we are not a mixed multitude of God, new new covenant people, but in the visible church, it's mixed. So I preach to God's visible church that's here before me every Sunday as if some of you are professing to be Christians and yet not are truly Christians. I believe that. So I preach the gospel to the visible church because not all of the visible church is a part of the invisible body of Christ. And that's because some of you are here pretending. You're professing Christians who claim God's law as your own, and you take the Lord God's name as your own, yet you are not his people. You're not in his family. So Charles Spurgeon says, if moral formalists had been rebuked, how much more these immoral pretenders to fellowship with heaven? If God's going to rebuke his moral formalists, how strong is his rebuke of the pretending moralists or the pretending wicked immoralists? Now, the first group had neglected the first table of the law, how to worship. The second group were breakers of the second table of the law. And notice how they broke the law. Verse 17, you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You are people of rebellion. Rebellion. This is true for all ages, but it's most clearly evident in children. So children, pay attention. Are you rebellious to authority? Do you hate authority? Do you hate discipline? Adults, 70-year-olds, do you hate discipline? Do you hate authority? It doesn't matter what age. Do you hate authority? Do you despise instruction? Do you disregard God's commands? This happens. Happens in my house, so I've got great illustrations. You give your kids a command. They're looking at you. They appear to be listening. They go outside, come back in five minutes later. You ask them if they did what you told them to do, and they did exactly what you told them not to do. They didn't do what you just told. Either way, it doesn't matter. They didn't do it. I just told you. You were looking at me. You were quiet. You were staring at me. You, did you hear me? Well, yeah, I heard you. Then why did you disobey me? Uh, I don't know. What that means is this. If you hear the instruction of God, if you hear the commands of God and turn around and disobey them, you're like a man who looks into the perfect law of liberty, sees himself clearly, and then does what? Forgets. Goes away and forgets. What kind of person forgets? It's a person who disregards. I hear the words coming out of your mouth. I hear the sound that it's making, but to me it's wah, 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 wah. Right? Wah, 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 wah. All right? I'm, not, I'm disregarding. That's a form of rebellion. What about this one? You tell your kids what to do. You say, go do this. They go, whatever. 
Oh, yeah, Tina raised her eyebrows. Yeah, that's right. Raise them up. Whatever. Hate discipline. Disregard the instructions. What kind of children do this? This this is actions of rebellion. Remember what was wrong with King Saul. He had said, I will take what God has said to kill, and I will sacrifice it to God instead, and God will be more pleased with sacrifice than obedience. But notice what um, the prophet says to him next, what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. When you rebel... You are practicing witchcraft. It's the same thing. You say, well, I would never sacrifice to an idol. I would never practice witchcraft. I would never be like that. Yes, in rebellion, that's what you are. You are just as bad as an evil witch. And those things, those people really exist. Witchcraft, divination, it really exists. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And notice... What happened to King Saul? Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What did God do because of this disobedience, this wickedness, rebellion? He removed him from king. God pays attention. We must not rebel. And God's people here are wicked because they are rebellious. Secondly, they were approving of wickedness. If you, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. They are approving wickedness. It's Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's not that we always practice sin. We encourage others to practice sin. We applaud others who practice sin. We keep company and have friendships with wicked people. It's approving of wickedness. And this is what it means to be wicked. And then thirdly, there's a category of evil speech. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. So it's filthy language, filthy things that should never be spoken are spoken. Filthy jokes and filthy words, filthy cursing. Uh, People love this one. People want to say, well, what makes a curse word a curse word? Whatever your society determines. Well, the Bible never says that's a bad word. Yeah, because the bad words change with culture, don't they? So what was filthy 100 years ago might not be filthy today. And what was not filthy 100 years ago might be filthy today. And we might make up new words for filth. Have you noticed that? New words are invented for filth. And if they're invented for filth and used for filth, why are you letting those filthy words used for filth to come out of your filthy mouth? If you're God's people. We'll say, well, God never said it. I can't say that one word. Well, why are you having to use filthy words? Use a word that's not filthy. Well, who determines filth? Your culture. Can we keep going around the circle? Yes. Because God is not going to put in the back of his Bible every filthy word that's going to be a filthy word someday. How long would the list be? Because cultures make up words. They change definitions. It changes with time. So know what's filthy. Don't say it. But notice also the language coming out is lies. Tongue frames deceit. It's not just lies. It's slander. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother. It's not just it's family. You're, You're slandering your own brother. So this is the wickedness of these wicked, rebellious people. These things you have done, verse 21, and I have kept silent. Now remember back earlier, it says this, the mighty God is summoning. He is going to come, verse 3, our God comes, he does not keep silent. So now the time of judgment has come because for a long time he had kept silent. But he's not going to stay silent forever. Judgment is going to come. And so he comes in his judgment. And what had God's people, these covenant people who were wicked and immoral, what had they thought about God's silence? 
Verse 21, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Oh, there it is. Do you picture God like you picture just kind of a superhuman being? He's so much like me. He's like other people. Mom and dad say, I'm in trouble. I'm at the store and I'm goofing around and they say, well, you're in trouble when we get home. And then a half an hour, 45 minutes later and you get home, they forget and, they, and you got away with it because mom and dad forget stuff because they're old and decrepit and minds are shot. Yeah, they forget. They forget what they told you. They forget what they warned you about. They, they forgot that they said, next time you do that, you're going to be in trouble. You do it again. You're waiting for the trouble. You remember what they said, but they forget. See, you think that God's like that? You think that God's like a bad parent who doesn't remember what he said, doesn't remember his restrictions. You think you can get away with it. And since God is silent, what does it look like? You rebel and you sin and you rebel and you sin and you wait for the judgment, but it doesn't come. And then you begin to be confident in your rebellion. You begin to think, well, judgment's never going to come. I'm going to get away with this forever. I mean, my God or the God, the only true God, is like a really bad parent. He never brings discipline. And we've got a world full of parents who never discipline their kids. And we have a world full of kids who think that's true not only in this life, but in the life to come. There will be no discipline, no judgment ever. You think God is like that. So God's patience is mistaken for impotence. The patience of God is very great towards provoking sinners. He sees their sin and hates them. It would be neither difficult nor damage to him to punish them, and yet he waits to be gracious, gives them space to repent, that he may render them inexcusable if they repent not. His patience is the more wonderful because the sinner makes such an ill use of it. It's from Matthew Henry. You think I'm all together. You think I'm one like you, as weak and forgetful as you are, as false to my word as you are. No, as much a friend to sin as you are. Sinners take God's silence for consent, his patience for connivance. And therefore, the longer they are reprieved, the more their hearts are hardened. But if they turn not, they shall be made to see their error when it is too late, and that the God they provoke is just and holy and terrible and not such a one as themselves. You think God's like that. And you think judgment's never going to come, but you are going to find out one day in this life or in the life to come that God is just and holy and terrible, and he's not like that at all. You have miscalculated tremendously. Hear the warning of God. Amen. Romans 2.4, one of my favorite verses on this very truth. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume on God's long-suffering with your rebellion and sin? Do you think it's just going to go on forever? Do you think that God's, do you forget not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's a day of judgment coming. God does not keep silence forever. This is the courtroom scene. He does not keep silence forever. He kept silence for a long time, but now he's entered his courtroom. Now the time for judgment has come. See the almighty God. This is what this psalm is teaching us most importantly. A day of judgment is coming. Do not presume on his kindness and forbearance and patience forever. It will not last forever, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Repent now. The day of salvation is here because God's judgment will one day fall. You must hear God's warning. He will not put up with your rebellion forever. 
So, verse 22 and 23, the Lord's mercy is declared. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God's judgment will be terrible, will be terrifying. He will tear you apart. He'll send you to hell forever. Mark this then. Don't forget God. Repent. Hear God's warning today. This is God's mercy. God's warnings are God's mercy. You say, why would God speak of such terrible things? Because he's trying to get you to repent. He's calling you to repentance, and he uses warnings to draw you to repentance. I do not want to magnify the warnings of God. I do not want to increase the warnings of God, but I do not want to uh, minimize it either. Hear those words. He will tear you apart and there be none to deliver. If you forget God, you rebel against God, you think he's like you, you think he's like a bad parent, whatever you think about him, he will come in judgment. Hear God's warning. That's God's mercy. This, is a, this sermon is a sermon full of mercy and it's even its warning. Therefore, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent of your sin and trust in God. Don't forget him. Turn to him. Trust in him. The demonstration of repentance and trust is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Turn and trust in Christ. He's paid for your sin on the cross. Trust in him. Believe in him. Repent. And then live out a life of forever thankfulness for what he's done for you on Calvary. We gather together around the table of God's grace. Full of hearts, hearts full of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. What a tremendous blessing. We have repented and believed, and Christ's sacrifice has paid our price. And we come with joy and thanksgiving. That's the outworking of those who repent and believe, is thanksgiving and a heart of joy and thankfulness. So if you're not a Christian, hear God's warning today. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ And then verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his ray rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Submit and be saved. Submit and be saved. Repent and believe. Submit and be saved. Order your way rightly, showing forth the salvation of God. I want you to see this clearly. Don't close your Bible yet. Verse 23, it sounds like the one who orders his ray rightly earns salvation. Offer thanksgiving, sacrifices, earn salvation. No. Thanksgiving is an outworking of the heart already repentant, a heart trusting in Christ. The one who orders his way rightly of submission is one who has already been saved. So it's not submit to be saved. It's submit as you are saved. Submit and be saved. So we are saved, and the act of submission is the outworking of that salvation. So we repent, and we believe, and we follow Christ as Lord, and we are gloriously saved. That's the good news of the gospel, not just in the Old Covenant, but also, not just in the New Covenant, but also in the Old Covenant. The gospel is here. Yet we know it more clearly that Christ is the one who pays the sacrifice. So that's why we gather around the table today. So men, if you come. We gather around the table of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dale, you want to help me? Why would you be thankful today? 
Because if Christ is your Savior, he has paid the price for every sin. He's satisfied the wrath of God for every wicked thing you've ever done. Have you been rebellious? Have you disregarded his commands? Have you said evil and wicked and filthy and slanderous things with your mouth? Have you said whatever to God, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, acted a certain way? What does he do for his people? He forgives. He cleanses. He takes care of it all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that you don't have to pay for your own sin or try to earn your own righteousness? This is the heart of Thanksgiving. We gather around the table knowing that God has saved our souls and we can trust him and we can rely on him and we can be thankful in all that he's done for us. And so this sacrifice that we celebrate is a memorial sacrifice of what Christ has done for his people on the cross. Are you one of God's people? Have you repented and believed? Have you submitted and been saved? Then gather with us. Take part with us. If you have also demonstrated that faith in believer's baptism. And so for communion here with our church. You need to be saved. You also need to have been baptized as a believer, and uh, then you can join with us. If not, just let the elements pass uh, as a demonstration of waiting for God to, to give you an opportunity to make your profession public, that you can join with us publicly in the Lord's Supper. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts to receive uh, this supper together.